Hello, and welcome to episode 97 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I'm Anthony Malikian, U.S. Editor of Waters. Uh, my partner in crime, James Rundle, will not be joining us today, but don't worry, you won't be hearing from me much either. Uh, this is our special Thanksgiving edition of the Wavelength. Uh, will it be as good as a Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving? Uh, probably not. But uh, if you work in technology, I think you'll dig this nonetheless. And uh, an effort to avoid, um, I'm at my girlfriend's family's house out in Ohio, in the middle of Ohio here. And right now it's Thanksgiving and I'm ducked inside of a car because it's very loud in that house. So it's a nice little reprieve for me right now to get to work on this podcast. Um, and today we're going to be looking at, basically what we've done is we've uh, spliced together pieces of four recent interviews we've done. Uh, where we interviewed senior technologists on the podcast to discuss everything from Bitcoin to fintech to cognitive computing to open source technology. Um, I could have included more, but even as I uh, do enjoy breaking away from the family here, uh, it is still a day off, so I don't want to have to work uh, too many hours here. But So our lineup is going to be as followed. Uh, first, we have Brian Harkins, head of U.S. Equities and Global FX at SIBO Options Exchange. Uh, he'll be talking about the firm's acquisition of BATS and how the exchange is attempting to launch a Bitcoin futures contract. Uh, next up, we'll have Oliver Harris, head of J.P. Morgan's in-residence program. He's going to explain uh, why the bank launched this fintech accelerator, and he gives two specific uh, success stories to come out of the program. Uh, next up, we're going to have Mark Andrews, vice president of Watson Financial Services Solutions for IBM. He's going to give his thoughts on how cognitive computing can help answer some of MIFID II's regulatory challenges. And then he'll give his thoughts on if an industry utility for AML KYC is on the horizon. And last up, but certainly not least, we have uh, Neil Pawar. He is Chief Technology Officer at AQR. He's going to talk about the impact and growth of open source projects in the capital markets and how his nearly 200 billion hedge fund is using these increasingly popular technologies to both improve its offering and to attract talent. James and I will be back next week. We'll be joined by Wei Shen Wang, uh, who's going to be over from Hong Kong. Week after that, we're going to have our editor-in-chief, Victor Anderson. He'll be on the podcast as he'll be in town from London. Uh, he'll be in town for Waters USA, which will be held on Monday, December 4th. Uh, there is still time to register. Um, if you're an end user, it's free to attend. So uh, it's our biggest conference of the year. A lot of great speakers we have this year, so you should sign up. Anyway, let me hand this over to the experts. First up, we have Brian Harkins of SIBO. Enjoy. Yeah, we're about six months out uh, uh, post-acquisition uh, uh, by the CBOE. How's everything going right now? Any uh, interesting tales? Yeah, no, I think it's um, – <clears throat> look, it, it, it's, uh, it's going wonderfully. Um, I'd kind of break it into two categories. The first is on the technology uh, migration. I mean, that was – you know the the ration much of the rationale for uh, for the deal. Um, I mean, I think we're executing on all cylinders there. Uh, we have a um, you know we've been doing a series of customer calls, um, and we're looking forward to the first um, you know executable in that plan, which is the uh, migration of the CFE, our futures exchange, mm-hmm. uh, onto Bats Technology early next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we have a a multi-year plan to start to move the legacy CBOE systems onto Bats Technology. Sure. The other, um, the other thing that I think is, uh, you know, really more in my world, I'm most excited about is um, some of the product uh, synergies and how we've worked together to provide uh, better products for our customers. A couple of, 
you know, stories to share that I think uh, illustrate the early success of the of the combined organization is um, on the relationship front. Uh, so that's we've been in the uh, ETP listings business for for a few years now. It's sort of an obsession of ours. Um, we look at uh, ETFs and ETPs as really the the uh, the investment vehicle for generations to come. Um, and one of the relationships we had was with the uh, the Winklevoss twins uh, with their Bitcoin right. mm-hmm. um, ETF that they were trying to get approved. Now, not approved yet by the SEC uh, for the ETF uh, of uh, Bitcoin, but that relationship led to uh, us creating a futures contract uh, that's based on the settlement values for um uh, Bitcoin, the the Gemini exchange run by uh, the Winklevoss. So again, that was a relationship of, that Legacy Bats had that we brought uh, into the, the CBOE organization, created a futures product. Uh, so far, uh, I mean, it's getting amazing uh, attention, and a lot of market makers really want to price the product. Uh, so we'll see, but uh, we're very very hopeful. And you're appealing the decision for the ETF as well, right? I think that's the last I heard. Excuse me. You saw you're appealing the decision for the ETF, right? For that's, us, yeah. So, so yeah. We're, we, we again we're optimistic about that, um, but obviously the SEC uh, Bitcoin is a new uh, it's a hotly debated topic as we all know. Um, but yeah, we're hopeful that um, it, it'll land in our favor there. Nice. And you must be experienced with this, I guess. You know, going through. From direct edge being acquired by Bats and now Bats being acquired by CBO. That's a couple of big acquisitions for you personally. Yeah, I mean, look, this, uh, I guess you can say I'm a, yeah, a, a merger or acquisition veteran. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's part of the, uh, it's part of the business. Um, not only part of the trading business, but it's part of the exchange business. It's a scale business. Um, you know, on the Bats side, we would, you know, we were a price and cost, uh, a price leader. But we did a lot of volume, so mm-hmm. it's a great business if you're big. Um, and you know what I love about um, the exchange business is that you can trade really any asset class on the, 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 the on a common set of technology. I mean, you just you're tweaking the software, and that's what uh, we're doing to um, you know to build out the, the legacy CBOE exchanges and move them over to bats. Um, but I always like to joke, look, if, if baseball cards were a liquid uh, instrument, we would somehow trade them on our matching <laughs> engine. So. Okay, again, that was Brian Harkins, uh, head of U.S. Equities and Global FX at SIBO Options Exchange. Next up, we have Oliver Harris. He is the head of J.P. Morgan's in-residence program. He's going to talk about their fintech accelerator and give some examples, some success stories that they've had in the past. Before we get into some of actual use cases and stuff like that, maybe people might not be as familiar with in-residence, uh, mm-hmm. what this is. Um, so maybe talk about you know what the, what that program is and how kind of JP Morgan how it plays into JP Morgan's broader um, technology scheme. Sure. So um, just to take a step back in terms of how JP Morgan is leading the way in fintech, um, there's there's really three key things that that we do. One, um, we've created a dedicated team to look at these emerging trends and technologies and how they translate into our business. In addition to that, we're building in-house capabilities, um, hiring in designers, data scientists, you know, top talent engineers to actually focus on building products internally for our clients and and our employees. The second is we have a very structured way to engage with the fintech um, ecosystem through our strategic investments teams and our tech strategy and partnership teams that are out there looking at companies and assessing their value proposition against our client needs. Mm-hmm. And then the third in residence, which 
I can do a bit of a deep dive um, case study on is is JP Morgan's unique platform to connect innovators with JP Morgan's expertise to actually co-create product and then move that into production. Okay. Um, and I'm happy to go through in a bit more detail on why it's different to a traditional VC or, or accelerator. Sure. Models. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe because I think that in traditionally people are familiar with the VC space, with the accelerator programs, but how do you kind of think yours is different? Sure. So in terms of why in residence is unique and why it's different, and, and just to caveat, this is not, uh, you know, replacing any of the existing uh, methods for incumbent banks to engage with you know, early stage startups or universities, it's accretive to what we're already doing. So what can you do already? One, you can invest, uh, you can deploy capital either in a corporate VC or on, on a strategic basis. And something we've been doing for many years is, is investing in companies when it aligns with JP Morgan's strategic interests. Okay. That's one. The second is having a tech BD function that is out there scouting startups, building bridges with universities and you know key actors that can help provide access to new technology and talent. Okay. And then um, the third, which is which is where in residence comes in, is actually joining the glue, the gaps between, you know, we're not just here to invest and we're not just here to use companies as vendors. What, you, what we need to do, given the emergence of these new trends and technologies and the wave of new startups that have been created as a result, mm -hmm. is we need a very structured way to meet companies and, when suitable, take them from pitch-ready to enterprise-ready. Okay. So that's different from accelerators that are really here to make companies pitch-ready. Um, we're not spending, you know... A, let's say around three months helping a company get ready and there's there's no demo day what we're doing is very different we're saying we're finding all the startups we're then assessing them against our client needs we're vetting them against alternative execution models i.e could we build it in-house is it actually suitable to partner with a fintech mm -hmm. and is it really solving an industry problem mm -hmm. and if it is solving an industry problem and they need help from JP Morgan to go from pitch ready to enterprise ready, we then embark on a journey where it might be three months, it might be two years, everything is actually tailored to the problem the startup's working on. And we agree a plan together and then we and then we get going. Okay. And I think the, the key part of why this program is unique is we're, we're aligning incentives across four key dimensions. One, the product, what does the company actually do? What help do they need from JP Morgan to actually scale their company? Mm -hmm. To the technology, again, how does how does their offering stack up against other internal offerings and vendor offerings? Three, commercial agreement, i.e. how expensive are they? Can we help them with their business model? And what's the business case around the proposition they're building? And then last is strategic investment and capital. Okay. And with our team, we're neutral. We sit, um, you know, in the business, supported by, you know, the the senior management of J.P. Morgan Chase, and the idea is, 
people on my team are ensure that those four dimensions run in parallel okay. and that we actually get things built and, and moved into production. Okay. Can you give me an example? So of maybe a success story, maybe a couple, you know, could you talk about how kind of some areas of focus from RPA to cloud to DLT to AI, what maybe are some uh, success cases that you so far have been able to kind of feed along that path? Sure. So I'll give you a range of um, case studies just to show how diverse and flexible the program is. Um, one is a company called H4. Um, it's founded by a group of former JP Morgan um, employees. And, and what they're looking to do is create a, a workflow tool and digital platform mm -hmm. to improve the origination process. Um, focusing today on debt capital markets. Um, and I, I would think of them as a um, Google Docs plus Dropbox specific to capital markets. Okay. Re really interesting company. And what we've been doing with them over the last year is taking them from an early stage MVP, um, and I'll just go through the, the four dimensions on the product side, We've actually put space in both our London and New York offices for their employees to work in, okay. given they need regular access to our people to help iterate their product as mm -hmm. one. On a technology basis, they work hand in hand with our engineers, and we've actually seconded um, an engineer to, to help work you know, full time to ensure that the integration with JP Morgan um, is successful. Um, and provide advice on cloud security, you know, infosec, um, to ensure that they meet, you know, our minimum requirements for integration. Okay. Um, on a commercial basis, helping them think through their business model and then actually investing in the company as well to ensure they have enough funding to, to scale their business. Um, in terms of where they are today, you know, very, very interesting company. Um, you know, about to launch their first, you know, beta offering to the market. Mm -hmm. um, and I think something we think is like very promising. So I think that's one case study where they, they're living in a JP Morgan building for a set period of time. Mm -hmm. They're solving an industry challenge. So it's beneficial for the whole street. And the idea is that one, once they're ready, they will, they will leave the program and actually you know, move into a vendor relationship with us mm -hmm. and solve, you know, a variety of pain points that, um, you know, our employees and the wider industry faces in um, in this origination process. So I think that's one case study that, that shows um, it, an intense version where we're doing full-on incubation. Sure. Uh, if I contrast that with another company, um, a company called... Nivora. Mm -hmm. They're doing, um, again, another great company. They're doing, um, you know, bond issuance on the blockchain okay. in a workflow tool. And here, again, we're taking a very, um, a more of a lighter touch approach. So, so they, they already have their own office. Um, and here we're really providing, again, the same challenge team, which mm -hmm. are senior leaders and the right SMEs from product, technology, 
and the front office. So we assemble unique teams for each startup. But here we're not doing full-on incubation, we're more acting as thought advisors, helping them on their journey. And, and this is actually something we're doing in partnership with um, you know, one of the UK regulators, the FCA Sandbox Initiative. Okay. Um, so again, that's more of a lighter touch model. But the theory here is that you know, if we were to move them into a production state, we've already started you know, the journey early on the thought leadership piece. Okay. So we're helping steer you know, the strategy of the company. Um, and again, if trying to like bake in success from day one. So I think those, those are two clear examples that show the, the range of um, opportunities. And I think just to close on this point to say that, you know, everything is genuinely tailored and bespoke to each early stage company we work with. Um, and we ensure that we have the right buy-in in terms of senior management and people at the working level that can actually help these companies. And at every stage of the journey, we're, in, we're trying to align incentives to ensure that it's mutually beneficial both for you know the company we're working with, our partner, and JP Morgan, and our clients' needs. Okay, thank you to Oliver Harris again for joining the podcast. Um, Brian and Oliver both joined us. That was about a month and a half ago that they were on the podcast. Mark Andrews was from uh, over the summer, I think in August, late July, August. Um, we went down to um, Watson's uh, IBM Center um, in uh, I don't know, somewhere in Manhattan. I've only been living in Manhattan for 12 years. I still don't know the, uh, the, the different uh, districts and whatever. Anyway, this is Mark Andrews, Vice President of Watson Financial Services Solutions for IBM. So maybe something like MIFID II, uh, something that everybody, at our conferences, a lot of people I talk about, they, they get a lot of clicks, uh, our stories get a lot of clicks on that area. So it's obviously a keen area of interest. Uh, maybe a specific use case around uh, something with MIFID II and how um, cognitive services could help uh, a firm to manage that regulatory change. Uh, that is a great example because MIFID II has a broad set of implications for firms involved in trading activities. Everything from figuring out what type of trading acti- what level of reporting you have to do on various different types of trading activities to, you know, how you manage the data and what types of information you have to provide about your trading activities. And this is something that uh, is impacting every firm that's doing any uh, trading or involved in any capital markets across Europe. And it's uh, something that the firms are struggling with to understand what's the implication on their particular business because each firm will be involved in different types of trading activities. So what reporting do you now have to do on your derivatives trading or FX trading? And the requirements are different for each type of instrument that you might be involved in trading. So what Watson has been able to do is read through those regulations and extract out there what are the requirements of firms to address and be able to deliver them directly to the people that are responsible for those particular operations or controls. Whereas in the past, you would have to assign a team to read through all the different documents surfacing. There's three different regulatory documents and a bunch of different guidance that's been surfaced around MIFID II in particular, and have to read through that and then determine who is being impacted by each part of the regulation. Some parts of the regulation are specifically related to regulatory reporting, Others uh, are related to uh, what types of controls you have to put in place around your trading activities. So being able to extract that from the regulations and deliver that to the right people in a more effective manner uh, is saving them a tremendous amount of time and enabling them to address those compliance requirements more quickly. I think that, you know, one of the – looking at the regulatory burden that financial firms face – 
obviously, um, Watson can help to alert uh, to suspicious activities or for no uh, customer uh, concerns that maybe uh, red flag uh, some potential clients. One of the things I've always heard is that it's just it's it there isn't a competitive advantage here, and that there is this kind of desire to see a, a push toward a utility kind of a service in the industry. Where what are the holdups to that, and where do you kind of see the the industry moving from? You know, kind of a more working together, sharing information standpoint, or is that still a ways off? It's more talk right now, in your opinion. Well, it, it's interesting what you brought up around the. Uh, whether why we're applying uh, cognitive technology in this space and why we think there's an opportunity is because this is not necessarily viewed as a competitive advantage for firms. You know, being able to uh, read through regulations more quickly, being able to ensuring that you are addressing conduct issues, um, ensuring that you're identifying any money laundering activity or fraud. These are areas that banks have been more willing to collaborate on. And that's why you have seen certain utilities pop up around the space, like some of the KYC utilities. Uh, and uh, this is an area where a lot of firms are very interested in figuring out ways to work together. Uh, unfortunately, to date, while there's been a lot of efforts in this space, most of the what we've heard from most banks is they end up driving and requiring more work as opposed to reducing the burden. Um, and that's been one of the challenges why we haven't seen as much traction with some of the utilities to date. And what firms are asking for is they, they want, they're willing to collaborate, but they want things that will impact their activities and their processes at their organization first. And uh, one of the challenges we saw with the KYC utilities is that each different region, each different country, um, and different banks have different things that they are mandated to do, different levels of beneficial ownership that they have to identify, um, different, lo uh, different levels of risk that they're willing to tolerate. So the key thing is to make sure that you provide a common set of capabilities that then can be leveraged by the banks to reduce their own uh, level of effort and improve their efficiency and make them more effective. And we see that as an initial step that's required. And then there's going to be an opportunity to start combining some of these efforts into some type of utility or consortium. And that's where we see companies moving towards. Uh, we know a lot of the banks have requested and suggested that governments should just take responsibility for any money laundering. And the banks have said, why don't we just give you all of our transactions and you guys determine um, and analyze the data. But uh, we think uh, what we've seen is that is far from reality of the government's being willing, their willingness to step up and take on that mandate. So what we need to do is find a way for the banks to be able to collaborate more effectively on addressing this. Okay, and finally, we have now Neil Pawar, Chief Technology Officer at AQR. Again, we will be back next week uh, with our regularly scheduled program. Again, Wei Shen will be joining us next week, Victor Anderson the week after that, and hopefully we'll have something special for the 100th episode. Hopefully we can convince Dan DeFrancesco to once again join the podcast since he is the one that started this thing. All right, but thank you, and here is Neil Pawar, Chief Technology Officer at AQR. You, you touched on it earlier. Something we want to talk about is open source. You know, a lot of firms in finance like to talk about open source and their love for it. Not many so much are willing to put kind of their money where their mouth is when it comes to contributing back. You know, you mentioned Pandas. You guys obviously have been big contributors to open source. To start, to kind of, we'll tie it in with, you know, what we were talking about before. 
how does open source play into especially recruiting that younger talent? Because I know I'm such a big part of it, especially as a developer growing up, not that I can speak for from experience because I haven't developed anything, but uh, that, you know, you love going to the open source community, getting, you know, being able to kind of add code and whatnot. How much does it play into the fact that you guys can say on these internships and stuff, listen, you're going to be able to get involved just like you, you were beforehand? Yeah, no, it is a big, it is a very big thing. And I would say certainly a trend I've seen, you know, I'd say 20 years ago, obviously open source wasn't as big uh, and certainly students coming out of school weren't asking as much about it. Um, like I said earlier, uh, Pandas is often how uh, college grads find us in the first place. And so it's, it's, it's very important. And I think that there's definitely um, a sense of the, the, the younger engineers coming out that they're asking questions around, well, you know, what are you doing to give back to the community? And that, 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 that sense of giving back, I think, in the value system of people coming out of school today, is much higher than it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I think that, that it's an important part. I can't remember who I was speaking with recently, but they were talking about how, you know, a lot of firms that they're trying to get into this open source thing to attract talent and stuff like that. But if you aren't contributing back, then you aren't giving into the ethos of what is open source. And if you don't do that, then you're going to alienate the young, talented developers, even the older ones that want to be part of a contribution and want to see something grow. So I think that that's something that maybe gets lost a lot on a lot of firms that are just kind of getting into the open source realm. It, it's really true. And, and I think something I'm, I'm really grateful for is uh, the culture at AQR uh, is very much about transparency. You know, one of the things that differentiates us from many other firms in our space is that we write academic papers about our strategies. We even make the data that was used to backtest these strategies available on our website. The data library is available for people to download. It's used very heavily in the academic community. And so w when I joined AQR three years ago, um, seeing that culture for me and also un understanding the history of Pandas, um, you know, made me feel very comfortable sort of continuing to push that agenda. And I would say that, you know, to, to, to others out there that want to, you know, contribute back into open source, um, I think it's really important to be able to understand the culture of the company you're in and whether it's going to be good with that, and then work through your legal and compliance departments to make sure you have all the right sort of checks and balances in place. So we have a group that meets on a regular basis that reviews things that we want to push back into the open source community, needs to get legal and compliance sign off before it happens. Um, I'm fortunate to work at a firm where, you know, that's something that people are very comfortable doing. Um, that may not be the case everywhere. And, you know, just in case there are some people listening that aren't as familiar with Pandas or don't know at all, why don't you kind of give a little bit of background on what you guys are doing with, with, uh, with that technology? Yeah, I mean, basically it's a data analysis library. So it's, you know, um, sort of a Python package that, that quantitative researchers, analysts, programmers used for just managing data and reading, writing it back to databases, manipulating it, you know, modeling off of it. And it's really used very, very widely across, you know, the uh, financial industry, but particularly in sort of quantitative shops more than anywhere else. What's, what's the future for open source, especially, you know, with these big sell side organizations, these big banks? You mentioned it, legal and compliance is kind of the big hang up for them. I know from having talked to folks that that's the biggest thing. They want to contribute back, but, you know, they have lawyers kind of, you know, red ink everywhere, you know, unsure of what to. 
So we see things like the Eclipse Foundation, where you have firms kind of contributing to a third party and then them contributing to the open source. Is that a sustainable model or is that a band-aid? Is that something that you think going forward will be the only way kind of big banks will be able to contribute? Or do you think there's a way they can directly do it? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the Eclipse Foundation is certainly a good example of a way that perhaps gets, you know, firms with a different risk appetite comfortable with contributing. Um, but, you know, we, we see some of the larger banks. Um, I, I was looking at Goldman Sachs recently, and they have a huge open source initiative within Goldman, and, and they talk about it very publicly on their website. So clearly some of the larger firms have figured out ways to get around that. I think it's only a matter of time before more firms realize that, you know, um, you can get comfortable doing that. Um, the things that people are contributing are not secret source. They're not you know, super proprietary parts of their platform. And frankly, as we've experienced with Pandas, once you put it out in the um, open source community, it improves and you've suddenly got, you know, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people contributing to it and making it better. And I think once, you know, firms get comfortable with that notion, uh, I think it's only a matter of time before more are able to do that. Yeah, is that maybe one of the bigger unrealized potentials of open source? People are so worried about the concerns around it and legal and compliance, and then, you know, we talk about the recruiting aspect. But at the end of the day, it's just going to improve the software. Absolutely. I mean, look at Wikipedia, right? I mean, pe <laughs> people used to think that, you know, well, why, why, why would I rely on Wikipedia? It's so easy for someone to to put nonsense on there, but the reality is it's policed by a community of people, largely volunteers, who are really strict about that stuff yeah. and find it and revert back immediately. And and it works the same way in the open source community. So I, I do think that, you know, the firms that haven't perhaps realized the uh, full sort of benefit of doing that will start to do so. And obviously as the demographic within firms changes as well, there'll just be more like-minded people that are really pushing in this direction. I mean, that's why I source all my stories from Wikipedia. Yeah, exactly. It's such a, it's such a solid source, you know? I wasn't going to say anything, but, uh, you know, now that you mentioned it. Now I know how I can screw with them on commodities. Just start, you know, creating some fake uh, Wikipedia yeah, entries. I'm like Ron Burgundy. Anything yeah, exactly. that shows up on Wikipedia, I'm going to write down. That's got to be it. <laughs> So looking forward, looking at your company right now, um, the organizational structure, I think one of the interesting things that we've spoken with you in the past about is how the engineers, they sit with the researchers on a desk. Maybe you can delve a little bit into the culture that you're kind of trying to create there. Yeah, well, first of all, I'd say just by way of background, I mean, it's, it's, it's been a very interesting debate in the industry, again, for as long as I've been in it. Um, you know, for certain types of functions where the line between engineering and research is really blurry. And so sort of front office quant, um, you know, group is a very good example of that. Um, you know, the question that's been out there is, uh, should those engineers just report directly into the, the research group or should they be part of, part of more of a central technology function? And we've seen both models over the years and both models have their pros and cons. Um, where we are at AQR today is we have uh, all the engineers in the firm are part of a single, you know, engineering organization, and I'm fortunate enough to be the CTO of that organization. Um, but the way it works is in situations where engineers are working really closely with researchers, with with in risk, in 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 um, you know um, portfolio management, and in pure research, um, they physically sit with them, they pretty much take their day-to-day -day direction in terms of priorities and features to be worked on from that particular desk or group. Um, but, but obviously, there, there may, there's a number of sort of common 
uh, core components, whether that's the stack they're developing in, whether that's building reusable components that other research groups can leverage. Um, that comes from more of a central drive of, of architecture. And so we, we, we think we found a really nice balance between the two um, where, you know, and the, out, the outcome of that is obviously less wheel reinvention. So when you've got a number of um, sort of different teams working on different strategies or, or different asset classes, there's obviously parts of their platform that are very different. But when you take a step back and you think about, okay, I've got data feeds coming in from you know thousands of different data vendors, I need to build feed handlers for them. I need to parse them, persist them, clean them, apply identifiers to them. Um, we don't want to see that kind of stuff built 15 different ways for each group. And and you know when you think about a small firm growing large, there's always going to be a certain amount of that that happens, right? Because, you know. Um, at, at that point in time, when, when you're in a growing business, a lot of decisions are made around time to market. And for time to market, you know, saying, well, I'm going to build this thing and it's going to be generic and work for everybody isn't necessarily what people want at the time. So oftentimes, you know, in, in the first sort of iteration of a technology platform or the firm, you may find a number of things that are done, you know, slightly differently, but they're really the same under the hood. Um, you then get an opportunity to refactor that at some point. And, and I'm very fortunate we're in that phase right now at AQR. And that refactoring allows you to kind of look at the common underlying pieces and you know rebuild those or adapt them so that there's a single instance of that. And now on each of the desks, you can draw from a growing library of resources. So it's almost like internal open source. And we really think of it in that way. Um, some of these libraries don't have single owners that they're contributed to by different development teams across the organization. And, and that really allows ultimately a lot more efficiency because you're not wasting time building things that somebody next to you has built. And that's one of the models that I think, again, uh, you know, diff different firms work differently. There are firms on the buy side that are, you know, more sort of eat what you kill type shops where each PM desk is sort of in competition with the others for capital funding and, and, and resources and so on. And in, and, and in those cases, you see a lot less collaboration across those businesses. We're fortunate enough where, you know, the, the, the incentives of, of, of people at AQR are very aligned. And so we want to build reusable components that can be reused and help other strategies have a more efficient way of getting their work done.